Lately, I've been thinking about the efficacy of the church. You know, what is the true effect that we, the church, are called to have, not only on ourselves, but, you know, the power of God being made manifest amongst us, the presence of God, as Sister Meredith just sung to us about, how that presence of God is made manifest and blesses and edifies us, but also, what, you know, what does that effect look like on the world, the healing of the nations, and the... Uh, the representation of the presence of God by the church, the making known of the manifold wisdom of God. And as I think about it, I think one of the greatest blessings of serving here at the Blue Point Bible Church is the freedom to really search through and to come up into the pulpit and to be honest with my studies and my, uh, you know, my honest reasoning with the scriptures to truly be a righteous and reasonable people. Glory to God. As I'm sitting here thinking through the song, you know, the blessing of being in the presence of God, I wrote on the top of my paper, what I want prayerfully to challenge each and every one of you to conversate about as we, uh, or to converse about um, when we go into our fifth Sunday potluck, when we can sit around in fellowship with one another, be asking each other, you know, what were you encouraged to think about today? I look forward to asking other people when I leave church at other churches and other congregations that are meeting this morning, what were you encouraged to think about today? Here at the Blue Point Bible Church, we, we say we promote a thinking faith, a faith that examines all things, a faith that truly glorifies God by offering us love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, as noted there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Thank God that we have that opportunity. And what we've been doing is we've been thinking through the biblical narrative. As we continue reading, studying, and thinking through the biblical narrative, we find ourselves today at Genesis chapter 34. I want to offer up a bit of a recap in what we've been thinking about and talking about. We've been following the life of the patriarch Jacob. And we've been seeing some great details being made manifest through his life. Ultimately, he recognized, he was a man who recognized the sovereignty of God. He lived in and under the sovereignty of God. He lived with a kindness. He, had a, he, he transformed his life from deceiver to a man who struggled with God for a new identity. And he lived out that identity by showing kindness, as we've seen in his uh, dealings with Esau and in his, and in his dealings with Laban. Laban, the, his father-in-law, was a deceiver himself, and he had tried to deceive Jacob, and Jacob used strategy, he used wisdom, something I believe we as all Christians can relate to, the need to live with wisdom, and he uh, lived with that wisdom. I've been presenting different details of the story in dealing with the patriarch Jacob. I identify with the story of Jacob. I believe it to be a truly beautiful story of redemption and transformation, if you will. Renewing of the mind. Jacob becomes a whole new man. Such hope in that story alone, not to mention the fullness of Scripture. Prayerfully, I have been developing the narrative in such a way that you too find yourself identifying with the struggles and details being impressed upon us. What I believe to be a proper understanding of the beginning Genesis, the beginning as Israel would have understood it. The beginning of the image of God, the people walking in the image of God. Matter of fact, in conversation yesterday, I found myself 
explaining how the, Jacob became Israel. And the 12 sons of Jacob are the 12 sons of Israel, which again, hopefully most of us are familiar now with that story and how Jacob struggled with God for a new identity and became Israel rather than Jacob, which was a name for, you know, Jacob represented, Jacob represented deceit, theft, whereas Israel is he who struggles with God, a struggle with God. Jacob struggled with God for a new identity. So many beautiful things that have been made manifest through this story of the patriarch Jacob. And I pray that your identifying with the story has offered God ample opportunity to bless you with wisdom from above. If you will, look at the front of your bulletin this morning. Put a quote there from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 25. It says, I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom. I believe that to be a foundation of what we do here gathering on this first day of the week as the church has come to do for 2,000 years now and uh, we gather on this first day of the week to seek out his wisdom in leading us forward. I believe we truly do that. I believe that's what we just come out of doing in our adult Sunday school. Anyone here familiar with the story of Dina, Jacob's daughter? Nice. Nice. Yes, absolutely. Jacob's daughter, um, you know, there's so much the rabbis have said about Jacob's daughter. And uh, there's a variety of interpretation in this story, and it's open to interpretation. And you'll see that as we go through this morning's sermon. I believe I speak for all of us. I know I speak for myself that I often hear people many times in ministry saying things that I disagree with. However, I don't listen to disagree. I've learned to think a different way. I don't always approach things to find where I disagree or agree. Rather, I approach to understand. In my dealings with people often, I don't find myself thinking, you know, do I agree or disagree with this person? Sometimes I do, being honest. However, I more often than not seek to understand where they're coming from and understand their approach and and then maybe offer up mine as an alternative rather than this whole polemic perspective that it must be this or that. This morning, I'm going to challenge you that Many of the stories in the Bible, many of the details of the Bible are exactly that. They are, not op- they are open to interpretation. And uh, I believe that I'll do some justice in, in showing you um, that what we need to be developing is a working knowledge. Oftentimes, when people ask me my perspective on certain details, I'll say I have a working knowledge of the details, meaning I don't always understand all the ins and outs But the working knowledge, the developing knowledge that I have, there are certain points that I can understand or I can believe or I can, you know, walk in. Another thing is that, you know, we're entering into a story here. The story of Dina is a story that most people don't know and they don't believe it's in the Bible. They can't believe it's in the Bible. How often I have conversations with people and we're talking about... uh, you know, we're talking about something in the Bible, and they'll say, that's in the Bible? The Bible's not boring. You know, people get obsessed with action movies. The Bible is better than an action movie, I'll tell you that. And uh, another thing about the Bible, another thing about a working knowledge of Scripture, is that there's certain things that are made very clear, right? You must have faith. Faith is what pleases God. That's something I'll stand on. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. That's something I'll stand on. Scripture is... 
edifying. It's good for reproof. It's good for correction so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for the work of ministry. That's something I'll take my stand on. God is faithful to all of his promises. That's something I'll take my stand on. But then there's quite a few other things that are not necessarily all that clear and, and are done in a manner of, of uh, being vague. And this is what I'm hoping to impress upon you this morning. They're done in a manner so that they would apply to the individual for edification, conviction, and assurance. We see this in many places of Scripture. Most specifically, Romans chapter 14 speaks about letting every man be convinced in his own mind, every man and woman being convinced in their own mind. A lot of times the details of Scripture, many times the stories are told in such a parabolic, pictorial vague way so that they would appeal to the individual. They would be able to be spoken to crowds, but each individual might hear a different manner of truth. Because let's face it, we all kind of receive information differently. Many from different backgrounds, different professions, different age groups, different cultures. We understand things very differently. We hear things differently. We might hear the message, but we hear it differently. And there's nothing wrong with that. Again, that's what I'm hoping to impress upon us this morning. Let's take a look at the text. Genesis chapter 34. Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, had born to Jacob. The daughter Leah had born to Jacob, sorry. Went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of the area, saw her, he took her and raped her. Now, I'm reading from the NIV translation, and it has chosen to... Translate that word used there as raped. Um, Again, there's a lot of cultural overlay, as Steve had pointed out, and uh, the rabbis recognized this, and and they they noted that. It would be important for us to note that as well, that when we're looking at this story, there's a lot of cultural details, audience relevance, as we often say, that uh, we need to take note of. Because as I read the other day, there's actually significant evidence in this story that this was not a rape as it would be generally understood in that culture. But rather, it would have been understood as a defiling because many would contest that there's nothing in this text that says that Dina refused to go with Shechem. So, again, just understand that this is more of a translation issue here when it says raped. Um, More so should say defiled or humiliated her. His heart was drawn to Dina, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, Get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dina had been defiled, his sons were in the field with his livestock. So he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the field and soon heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor had said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property on it. Then Shechem said to Dina's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the peace, the price for the bride and the gift, and I will, as great as you would like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife, 
Because their sister Dina had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, We can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us, circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man, who was most honored of all of his family, lost no time in doing what they said because he was so delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to the men of their city. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it, and the land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours, but the men will agree to live with us as one people only on one condition that our males be circumcised, as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? So let us agree on their terms and they will settle among us. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dina from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sisters had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out of the wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in their houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should we have treated our sister like a prostitute? Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So, what is going on here? You know, of significance is the word Dina. The name Dina means judgment. So whatever is going on here, it's a story of judgment. This is one of those stories when I'm going through the Bible, I often wonder, why is this here? Why was this mentioned here? Why is this story significant to the genesis of Israel, the beginning of Israel? And as I did some research, I found out the name Dina means judgment. So the story is of significance because of judgment. It's only mentioned from Genesis chapter 30 to Genesis chapter 46. And it's not mentioned anywhere else in scripture. The rabbis seem to have a lot to say about this text, however. I did some reading last night into the Midrash and Agadah. These you know, Jewish writings that further explain the telling, so to speak. Um, the thinking, the inquiry into the details um, that the, the Jewish sages, the Jewish rabbis would offer up. And I want to share some of these details with you because this story becomes quite interesting. 
one of the things about Dina is that she's understood to have be somebody that represented very positive qualities. Judgment, positive qualities, interesting significance there. Um, there's so many different opinions and traditions. And, and what I want us to do is I want us to begin to think like this. That when we listen, I want us to think to understand. I want us to allow the story to convict us, whether we agree with all the details or not. What about the moral? What about the main point? And that's where I think we find our commonality. We find our, you know, when we look at these things, we all sort of desire similar things. We all have a sort of commonality in the, uh, well, prayerfully we do, um, in the things that we desire and the things that we understand and the, the things that we believe need to be impressed upon every individual. When looking at this story, there's a lot of debate about Leah giving birth to Dina. There's the first perspective that Leah was pregnant with a son and that Rachel, her sister, had seen that, Rachel being jealous, prayed that she would have a daughter because, again, having a son was of significance in that culture. It was seen as a more powerful thing. So could this be an act of spite being done by Rachel. Another tradition relates that Leah, and not Rachel, was responsible for the change. Leah knew that Jacob would be father of 12 tribes. When she realized she was with child and that Jacob already had 10 sons, she herself had borne him six sons, Bilhah and, her, and Zilpah, had, the two handmaidens, had each given birth to two sons, she said, "Shall my sister Rachel not even be as one of the ha- shall not be as one of the handmaidens?" Leah therefore prayed to God on behalf of her sister, seeing her here, seeing Leah as somebody of a blessed nature, therefore being passed on to Dina, um, that she prayed on behalf of her sister, saying, "Turn what is in my womb into a female, and do not prevent my sister from bearing a son." God accepted her prayer. And the fetus in her womb was transformed into a girl. The rabbis based this upon Genesis chapter 30, verse 21, where it says, Afterwards, she bore him a daughter. And when they would say, the rabbis would say, Afterwards what? After what? And they would say, That is after Leah's prayer. She bore him a daughter. Since Leah rendered judgment, Dana Din, on herself, the newborn was named Dina. That's just, again, a theory of the rabbis. According to another tradition, each of Jacob's children were born together with his future spouse, except for Dina, who was born alone. It therefore was said of her, this girl is with justice and judgment. Not quite sure how that applies. Rabbis have some strange thinking there. Um, In an attempt to resolve the discrepancy between the list of those who went down to Egypt with Jacob and the total number of 70 given in the Torah, the rabbis assert that there was a twin born with Dina and that she was one of the seven who came down. Apparently there's a numerical problem um, there for some people. Um, maybe we'll get to that in our reading and we'll better understand that detail. Um, however, what I think is of most significance is, is the judgment. Again, something interesting is that Shechem was a city that was predestined for evil happenings. This is something the rabbis assert. And the reason being is that not only was Dina abused in Shechem, this is also the place of Joseph's sale. This is also the kingdom of the Davidic line that was divided, where it was divided. This is where the kingdom of Davidic, I'm sorry, the Davidic kingdom was divided in Shechem. The story of Dina is one of the most difficult biblical narratives, and the rabbis offer differing explanations 
for how Jacob's daughter became involved in this whole episode. Namely, again, keeping in mind that judgment perspective there. So there's many different versions. Is it, this story is a story of judgment upon Jacob, a punishment for Jacob for something he had done wrong. Or maybe it's a punishment for Leah. Or maybe it's a punishment um, recognizing Shechem's guilt. Some rabbis really take notice of Dina's responsibility and her end. And and there's all sorts of details that fill in the blanks of this story. However, what I want us to take notice of today is the different views, and I'm going to put some of these before you, the different views on who was to blame and why the judgment was rendered. So let's first look at Jacob. In an attempt to come to terms with the rape of Dina, the rabbis suggest that this was a punishment for something her father had done. Specifically, according to tradition, he was punished for what he said upon building the altar at Shalem, upon his return from Paddan Aram. Just a passage before, Genesis chapter 33 verse 20 says that he set up an altar there and called it El, God of Israel. The Midrash, again the inquiry into the details, reads, this is a rabbi's opinion, that he called himself God, Jacob. Jacob saying that you are the God in heaven, but I am the God on earth. And since he seemingly usurped authority there, the authority of God, he was punished by the rape of his daughter. Another tradition has Jacob punished for what he said to Laban when they divided the flock between themselves. In Genesis chapter 30, verse 33, he says, In the future, when you go over my wages, let my honesty toward you testify for me. He boasted that his honesty would later come to light, which was not all that certain. Instead, Jacob should have said, as Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1 says, not boasting of tomorrow, for you do not know what tomorrow will bring. So Jacob should have basically said that, let my honesty testify, not in the future or start planning for the future. Seem to impugn upon the sovereignty of God. Another tradition suggests that Jacob's tardiness in honoring his vow was the cause of his punishment. When in Bethel, during his flight from Levan, he vowed that if God favored him, he would return to Bethel and erect an altar to the Lord in Genesis chapter 28, verses 20 through 22. Jacob, however, procrastinated in fulfilling his pledge. First, he lived in Laban's house for 20 years, and even after returning to Canaan, he dwelled in Shechem. He therefore was punished by experiencing all three of the cardinal sins of idolatry. Forbidden sexual relations and bloodshed, forbidden sexual relations by Shechem's rape of Dina and bloodshed, the ensuing slaughter of the inhabitants of Shechem by Simeon and Levi, and idolatry. Followed this massacre, Jacob commands all the members of his house to rid themselves of foreign gods. We see this later in the text. Yet another tradition claims that Jacob was penalized for preventing Dina from marrying his brother Esau. Now this is a rather interesting part of the story. This is something I find interesting in the story here. It is said that before his encounter with Esau, Jacob sent his family across the Jabbok River. We're told in Genesis chapter 32, verse 22, that same night he arose and took his two wives, two maidservants, and his 11 children. The Midrash asks, where was Dina? And the answer is that he, Jacob had locked her in a chest saying, 
so that Esau should not see her and take her from me. God then punishes him for withholding Dina due to her good attributes, which could have reformed him. And since he did not want to give Dina to Esau, wickedness continues. And uh, Jacob is ultimately punished by her being sold off to, or being raped by, or being taken by, or defiled by, whatever term, um, by Shechem. Interesting. I like that story. In one of the Parshots, they have the details of Dina, the woman who made a difference, they say. And uh, going on about her beauty of inward qualities there in Psalm chapter... What psalm is that? Psalm chapter 45, verse 13. The entire glory of the daughter of the king is her inwardness. So many have proposed that Dina had this beauty of character, beauty, beauty of personality. And she, in all probability, would have influenced Esau to live an upstanding life. God was so disappointed that she did not have the opportunity to work her magic on Esau and therefore rendered judgment upon Jacob. Interesting story. Many see Dina as the Torah's first prototype of female leadership. Again, I found that to be a rather interesting read through the significance. You notice none of the commentaries place any blame on Dina, unlike many Christian pastors, unfortunately. You know, many of our brethren, they are not afforded the opportunity to think through the differences of opinion, the differences, the variety, and to truly think through the scriptures. Matter of fact, many pastors, I'll tell you what, many pastors, and some rabbis, to be fair, some of the, you know, some of the Jewish midrashes have this interpretation. They'll take this text and they'll go over to uh, Genesis chapter 34, and they'll say, now watch this, verse 1, Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. Why is she doing that? She went out. She was in the habit of going out. And then they'll trace this back, matter of fact, to Leah, when Leah went out to greet Jacob. And they'll say, look, she had a habit of going out. And they'll kind of paint this picture of these women as sort of harlots. And that they uh, had this negative connotation about going out. And they use this as a you know, to place emphasis on about, upon our culture today and how they go out and then it tries to bring the blame back to Dina for something she seemed to do to bring this upon herself. I despise that interpretation. Most commentaries seem quite adamant not to place any blame on Dina. Rather, matter of fact, she's seen as somebody that is very beautiful. One commentary says, or actually, matter of fact, this is a Spanish commentator in the 15th century. He says, this did not happen to Dina because she was a girl who liked to hang out. She was Leah's daughter, and Leah was one who stayed home all day, whereas Rachel was the outgoing shepherdess. Also, from Jacob's side, he was the dweller of tents. And if the father is an internally focused person, how much more so the daughter? This teaches that Dina did not go out for wrong reasons. God forbid. She went out only to see the girls in the land since there was no other girls except her in Jacob's house. And she wanted to learn from them as young girls often do. And I appreciate that interpretation. And that goes along with that par shot that I was mentioning where it talks about Esau and, and how she could have changed some of, the, um, some of the, the things about Esau. 
It seems that Dina, one, one of the commentators say, that it seems that Dina, even in her utter passive, passivity, had an overwhelming effect on Shechem. This ex- is expressed through the bond that they shared. The clinging of souls is only possible between people who are on similar levels. Although physical attraction is possible between two people of very different levels and backgrounds, here Shechem felt a kinship of souls because she was the daughter of Jacob. So, then there's the perspective that it was something Leah had done. Remember, Leah had went and found the mandrakes. She had her son go and find the mandrakes for her. And uh, this is being seen as a punishment for her idolatry. Another midrash explains Leah's sin with the mandrakes is that she was ungrateful to Rachel. God asked her, is this the reward for a good deed? Is this the reward of your sister Rachel who gave you signs with her husband that Jacob and Rachel had agreed upon so that Laban would not be able to deceive Jacob to spare you embarrassment on your wedding night? As punishment for this behavior, God caused Leah even greater embarrassment with this episode of Dina. There really is just so much to say. I pray that I've challenged you on the back of your bulletin, matter of fact. I challenge you to do a bit of study. I say, what do you think of the story of Dina? If you're not familiar, go ahead and read Genesis chapter 34. Read Genesis chapter 34 to Genesis chapter 37. Look a little bit before the story. Look a little bit after. Because another thing I want you to think about is what Midrashic, some of the ones I have mentioned here this morning, inquiries, what sort of interpretations um, of the details speak to you? What do you see coming out of this story? And again, I want to impress upon you the freedom to find conviction in this story, individual, personal conviction. How do you see the story of Dina fitting in with the details before and after Genesis chapter 34? Many of you, well, last week, many of you know that I, I commonly make mention of this, but I did last week. Second um, Peter chapter 1 is a very important text. The text tells us that it gives us a list of about eight things, and it says if you grow in these things, if you are increasing in these things, you can trust that you will be neither ineffective nor unfruitful in the use of the knowledge of God. And I happen to believe that that is what we exist for. We, we are here to make known the manifold wisdom of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. We are here to be those people. And as I look at 2 Peter chapter 1, I can't see any other text in the Bible that we should be so excited about reading and so emphatic on taking our stand upon that this is our growth method. This is our strategy to take over the world. To grow in those things. And for me, I, I do this eight-week cycle where I sort of challenge myself, what am I growing in? And if I'm not, you know, I, I pray about it and I, I ask God to convict me on what one of those things do I need to actively increase in right now, in this season. And lately I've been looking at virtue, moral goodness. And something about moral goodness is that it is a very, more often than not, a very opinionated topic. And I believe that we need to be wary of that. We need to take notice that it is an opinionated topic and, and more often than not we're hearing opinion rather than fact. Jesus had said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees because again, they built teaching upon teaching of commandment, of commandment, of commandment, made it so difficult. And even Jesus said, he said, they make them twice as much the sons of hell as they are. And we see this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 6. Also, 
Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said that you make the word of God of no effect by your traditions. He said this in Mark chapter 7, verse 13. Because the word of God is not here to create judgment and turmoil and you know, self-defeat. It's here to build us up and help us understand the grace of God being made manifest and working in our lives to the renewing of our minds. I really want to challenge you to read through Genesis chapters 34 through 37 and consider why is this story in the Bible? What was the point of adding this confusing detail here? And why did God not make it all that clear? What conviction can you find in the text? I'm going to venture to say that many of the stories and details in Scripture are intentionally vague or open to interpretation to allow each of us in our different roles, positions, and places in life to gain wisdom. In closing, I want to make mention of our study yesterday, our Sunday school. We... Uh, talked a lot about moderation. Not only moderation, but we talked about um, what does it mean for a woman to be modest? There we go. Not moderation. Modest. Modesty. And uh, I noticed that we sort of had different interpretations, different understandings of modesty. And who was to blame, for example, in this type of a story? And uh, I believe that to be okay. Because when we take a look at the scripture here in Titus chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writing to his spiritual son, he makes clear, at least it seems to me, that different people are doing different things. Certain, again, you know, if you're an older woman, you're going to receive a story about a young woman doing certain things different than me as a young man. And that's important because we all have our place. We're all members of that body. To each of us have been given different gifts. We are accor- according to our faith, according to the place of the stature that we are, not on a level aspect of faith, but rather in a variety of different methods of the way that that faith has been made known and made manifest to the glory of God. Because again, I don't know how many of us would have ever heard the truth if we didn't have somebody being sent to us that allowed us to understand that truth in a certain way. Again, there was a strategy that God had related in having Paul the Apostle Paul, go to the Gentiles. There was something there. God understood it. God knew what he was doing. Let's close by just taking a look here at Titus chapter 2 and being convicted by these details and our place in, in understanding a variety of different opinions and a variety of different thoughts, but all the more understanding the truth of the matter and gleaning the things that we are called to have, that the things that we are really supposed to be convicted by. Here in Titus chapter 2. You, however, you Titus, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women, who, they, who's they? Those older women can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. You see, 
these older women are going to relay this message to the younger women. Because again, there's a difference between an older woman relaying certain details about being self-controlled and pure and staying at home than a young man telling that to a young woman. The truth will be heard different. And I love how we often say that God speaks to people in ways they can understand. Well, it's important for us as his image bearers to do the same. Speak to people in a way that they can understand. Speak to people through whom they can understand. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything. Try to please them, not to talk back to them. And not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God has appeared and offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. In this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good. These things are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Surely we can take note that we're living in a different time. We're not living in that present age. We're living in the hereafter. We're living in the blessings of all that was provided. And therefore, we should all the more take a look at this text and ask for conviction. Let's pray. Mighty God, we thank you, Lord, for your truth. We thank you for the spirit that allows us to be passionate and discerning for your truth, Lord. As we leave here today, Lord, I pray that I have impressed upon us, Lord, that you have impressed upon us through your spirit that we should be wary of opinions. Not that we should disregard them, but rather we should seek those things that lead to edification and excellency, Lord. Things that convict us, Lord, so that we can live in a manner that is consistent with your word. Thank you for your truth, Lord. Thank you for this story here of Dina and the variety of opinion, the variety of judgment that is relayed through the text so that we all might find conviction in some sort of way, Lord. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for leading your church, making known your manifold wisdom so that we would have a responsibility to make that truth known. We give you all the praise and glory, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.